Welcome to Medicine the Truth, one of our four weekly podcasts in our Fixing Healthcare series. I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicines Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a broad range of medical topics can be found on his website, Robert Pearl M. Robbie, listeners are enjoying this blend of the latest in medicine combined with ongoing updates in COVID-19. What's new? Jeremy, for the first time in three years, we can say that the pandemic is officially over. As we discussed in our last episode, the federal government, as planned, ended the official public health emergency last week, and the World Health Organization, the WHO, ended the international pandemic emergency a week earlier on May 5th. The agency's announcement pointed out, quotes, it is time for countries to transition from treating COVID as an emergency to dealing with it as a disease that is here to stay. Consistent with those formal declarations, we're seeing the weekly COVID death numbers drop way down, possibly decreasing to under 1,000 deaths a week in the near future. And if that happens, it would bring the annual mortality into the range of the number of deaths from flu and traffic accidents each year and half the number of deaths that occur annually from opioids. The COVID mortality numbers stand in sharp contrast to January 2021. At that time, the death rate was close to 25,000 people per week. Even as recently as January of 2022, the mortality was still 18,000 a week. To date, over 1.1 million Americans have perished from this coronavirus. And the WHO estimates that 20 million people have died globally from COVID, even though the official numbers are about 7 million. Unfortunately, three years after the emergency began, the public health capability, both of the US and the world, it's no better than it was at the start of the pandemic, outside, of course, of the availability of the mRNA vaccine technology, which was a remarkable scientific advance. Finally, in an ironic twist, since our last episode, the CDC held a conference on infectious diseases. And following the conference, at least 35 attendees became infected, a powerful sign of how viruses pay no attention to titles or educational status, given how transmissible the new strains of this virus are, and the fact that unlike the flu, it is circulating year-round, every time large indoor events are held, we're likely to see clusters of cases just like this. You mentioned there has been a major drop in the number of deaths from COVID-19. How does that put this problem compared to other threats to people's lives? Jeremy, with the number of annual deaths having dropped in half, COVID is now the fourth rather than the third leading cause of death in the United States. In 2022, 3.2 million Americans died from all causes. And of those, 187,000 deaths were from COVID. And that number is far less 
than the approximately 700,000 deaths a year from heart disease, 608,000 from cancer, and the 208, sorry, the 218,000 from accidents and injuries. As a result of the drop in mortality from COVID, the overall death rate in the United States actually declined last year by about 5.3%. There was an exception. That was black individuals from whom the death rate rose year to year. But most worrisome finding was that the mortality rate across the whole population from cardiac problems, it actually went up in 2022. This could reflect poorer management of chronic diseases with the problematic long-term implications for the future health of the United States being quite worrisome. How about something new unrelated to COVID? Jeremy, one of the major announcements came from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. This is the body that makes health recommendations for the entire country when it comes to preventive health screening. And it modified the approach that doctors should follow, specific to breast cancer detection. The committee lowered the age at which it recommends women should begin mammogram screening from 50 years of age to 40 years of age. But it also simultaneously relaxed the expected frequency of routine mammogram screening from every year to every two years. It's noted that the problem with more frequent screening is the risk of false positives. And when that happens, there's a need for a biopsy and there's psychological harm to women. And they become frustrated with the process and there's a fear that they'll just stop getting screened altogether, which would be incredibly problematic when it comes to early detection of breast cancer. The committee concluded the advantages of annual versus biannual screening and the negatives of false positives offsetting each other. And they concluded, therefore, that a biannual, every two-year time frame was optimal, except in women who had higher risk as a result of maybe prior diagnosis of breast cancer in the opposite breast or one of the known genetic markers for high risk of developing breast cancer. Previously, screening had been recommended for women age 40 to 50 when there was a family history or one of these other risk factors. And annual exams were recommended for all women aged 50 to 75. So we put all the pieces together, but the cast force calculated is that by dropping the age from 50 to 40, the average risk woman would decrease the chances of dying by 20% as opposed to the approach of the past. And the committee was hopeful that by reducing the age of mammography screening to 40, particularly in black women who currently have 40% higher rates of breast cancer deaths, even when these individuals have equivalent screening rates, that hopefully the death rate could be brought down to be much more comparable with white women. As you might expect, organizations representing radiologists who do the screening were disappointed. They thought that the previously recommended annual exams should be continued. And the American Cancer Society took a middle ground with screening recommended starting at age 45, rather than the previous 50 or the new 40. Annual studies being offered, but only for the next decade with two-year testing after that, assuming that the previous studies are normal. Across the United States, breast cancer is the second highest cause of death amongst women with lung cancer being the number one cancer 
that causes women to die. And although breast cancer is most commonly diagnosed in women aged 65 to 74, the incidence in women aged 40 to 49 has risen 2% a year since 2015. Overall, heart disease remains the number one killer of women, but amongst the cancers, lung followed by breast are the highest causes of female mortality. Jeremy, as a patient, how do you feel when the recommendations for medical care change frequently? Does this undermine or does it augment your confidence? Robbie, it depends on the situation and the frequency of the changing recommendations. If medical advice I've been following for a long time gets changed to a new breakthrough or research, I'm totally good with that and will be fully confident in the new advice. I do not think of it as much that the recommendations are changing. It is more that the messaging around COVID-19, for example, was inconsistent and that the people were giving ever-changing messaging from people that didn't seem as confident in what they were saying as they should have been. I think, again, like my confidence on this of changing medical recommendations is very dependent on the situation at hand. Returning to COVID, what else is new? Jeremy, first there's the inevitable new corona variant, but as expected, it doesn't seem to behave differently from the one before it. There's a similar chance of becoming very sick and a mortality rate that doesn't appear to be any higher. And hopefully all of our listeners to Medicine the Truth and to the predecessor Coronavirus the Truth recognize this pattern and they are in the least bit surprised. A second COVID-19 story comes from the retrospective view of how our nation responded to the pandemic. A 34 member team that was called the COVID Crisis Group, consisting of experts from academia, health policy, and public health, reviewed data on our country's performance. And their conclusion was that the crisis exposed, quotes, collective national incompetence in governance. It complemented oper Operation Warp Speed and the rapid development of an effective vaccine, but it questioned why would we fail to apply the same level of leadership and speed to the manufacture of protective gear, COVID-19 tests, potentially other medications? There were so many more things we could have done, but it was not accomplished. And as a result, people were exposed and people died. It noted the lack of authority for governmental agencies like the CDC to collect data on infectious diseases, highlighting the requirement to obtain signed agreements from states and local levels in order to get this data. This is a right that was granted to state and local governments in the late 1800s. It's clearly outdated, makes no sense, but it continues to be the way that our government functions. Finally, there was a report from the Kaiser Family Foundation. It looked at deaths from COVID by race. Unlike other analyses, this one focused on the people under the age of 75. These are the very premature deaths. It found that the years of life lost was profoundly higher among Black and Hispanic patients compared to Asian and white individuals. The number of years lost was almost twice as great in communities of color, meaning that a disproportionate number of individuals died earlier. And the reason ties back to a topic Jeremy, we discussed early in the pandemic, members of communities of color often work in jobs where they must not only be there in person, but also take public transportation 
to travel there. And this exposes them to the virus more frequently and at higher concentrations. In total, among people who died under the age of 75, 59% of the lost years were for Black and Hispanic persons. Another example of racial disparities in healthcare outcomes in the United States. Jeremy, let me ask you, the head of the COVID crisis group was a gentleman named Philip Zelinkow. He was also, by the way, the leader of the 9-11 Commission, very well-respected academic. His perspectives were valued on a bipartisan basis. His conclusion from the research and the interviews the committee did was, quote, when the competence fails, that's when the toxic politics come in. My question for you, Jeremy, as an historian, is do you believe toxic politics most often result from governmental incompetence? Or do you think governmental failure is most, most often a product of toxic politics? Robbie, I think it's both. I think uh, we have the recent phenomena of social media and 24-hour cable news. On social media, people often live in echo chambers of people that already agree with them 100%. How news organizations get clicks is by having the most sensationalized and fear-mongering headlines. This is the same way cable news channels get their viewers, by making people scared and sensationalizing the news. Toxic politics, in my opinion, is mostly from this toxic online and 24-hour news culture. Politicians know that what gets them campaign donations and elected is by going on the news and making the other side seem like a true enemy that needs to be feared. This drives division in the country and makes people more likely to turn into the cable news and social media echo chambers. In my opinion, it is a cycle that's getting worse and worse and never ends. Uh, when politicians are so focused on demonizing the other side of the aisle and one-upping their political rivals, they will not be working together even when they need to. COVID-19 should have been a 9-11 type moment that united us, not divided us further. When we work together in an emergency is when we overcome crises. When we are divided in the emergencies is when we fall apart. Robbie, anything more on COVID-19? Jeremy, in follow-up to the last issue, there's now evidence that prior to publication, Florida's Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo personally altered the report from a state-driven study on COVID vaccines, and he deleted data that showed minimal added risk to young males for heart problems from mRNA vaccines. This risk has been an area of contention, with advocates for vaccination pointing out that developing COVID leads to myocarditis as, or even more often than following vaccination. And they point out that death from the vaccine is incredibly rare, almost non-existent. Opponents point to this complication as an argument against expanded vaccination and mandatory requirements for vaccination for public officials. The original report and data collected indicate that the danger from vaccination wasn't large, and it didn't pose in the minds of the people doing the research a significant risk. Lopato replaced that language with a warning that men between 18 and 39 years old are at high risk of cardiac illness for the two COVID vaccines that use mRNA technology. At this point, the magnitude of the risk for young males from the vaccine, it's still being debated. And individuals in this age group who are men are encouraged to choose one of the vaccines, the one with the lower risk. Most scientists would have been comfortable had the Florida Surgeon General simply added his personal perspective, but made all of the research and data available. Altering and deleting scientific facts, however, 
That's not the right way to obtain the best clinical outcomes. Time and again on this show, Jeremy, we talk about the fact that mixing politics and science is a prescription for medical harm. A listener wanted to know what ended up happening with the DEA's plan to force in-person visits to prescribe certain medications, including an effective drug to help people with opioid addictions avoid overdoses. He thought our criticism of the original proposal was spot on. Jeremy, I hope our comments move the agency in what I believe to be the right direction. I also know that numerous people besides us provided similar feedback, actually 35,000 in the end. The outcome from the DEA is a delay in implementation. They asked for more time to finalize the ultimate rules, and now they will wait until November 11th to consider making the change. And that means that the doctor-patient relationships that are established over the next six months will stay in place for an entire year after that until November 11th of 2024. While we're talking about federal agencies, the FDA approved the GlaxoSmithKline Respiratory Syncytial Virus, or RSV, vaccine for adults over the age of 60 a topic we discussed again on this show several months ago. You may remember that it was 94% effective against severe disease and 83% effective at preventing symptomatic infections. It's expected that the RSV vaccine manufactured by Pfizer will also be approved in the near future. In total, the infection kills 10,000 people a year over the age of 65, and it leads to 160,000 hospitalizations for that age group. Although kids under the age of five can also suffer complications, and that each year there's between about 100 and 300 deaths, so far there's been no plan to introduce the vaccine uh, for children, although clinical trials are being contemplated and probably will start sometime in the future. The vaccine is in the process of being approved for pregnant women who will then pass the maternal antibodies to their unborn children and at least protect newborns against RSV for the first six months of their life. Robbie, I continue to read about the negative psychological impact that COVID-19 has had on teenagers and their mental health. Is there any positive news? Jeremy, the negative studies continue to be published. High rates of depression, social isolation, ER visits for mental health issues, and unfortunately, suicides. However, one positive outcome of the social isolation is that there's been a huge decline in high school students having sex. I should note that teen sex has been the, was declining even before covid but the pandemic accelerated the trajectory. According to the CDC, in 1990s, more than half of high school students reported having had sex. By 2019, the number had gone down to 38%. And two years later, 2021, based upon the data from 17,000 students, was down to 30%. And the same decline was reported when teenagers were asked whether they were currently having sex and if they had had four or more partners. The next survey is scheduled for 2023, and it's already underway. And it will show whether this decline was temporary or an ongoing trend. Of interest in the same 2021 survey, only 75% of students reported being heterosexual. And that was down from 89% in 2015. When I look at all this data, it's pretty clear that sexual mores are changing and behaviors are evolving rapidly. As long as we're on the topic of sex, I heard that birth control pills will now be available over the counter. Is that correct? Jeremy, you are correct. An FDA advisory panel unanimously recommended making this change. 17 yeses, zero noes. The FDA itself will now need to make a final ruling, but almost always when the advisory committee is unanimous, the decision becomes policy. However, I found the debate over this proposal distressing. The underlying argument 
was that women couldn't make this type of decision on their own and that they would make mistakes. What I can't figure out is whether that reluctance of some individuals to give over-the-counter access to women was driven by political pressures, ones that have already compromised women's ability to control their own bodies, or a desire to retain the paternal nature of medicine that's left over from the last century. In either case, it's degrading for women and inappropriate. Yes, there are a few medical conditions that argue against using birth control pills, but they can be clearly spelled out on the package. And it's ludicrous that some opponents say that women won't take the pill appropriately, leading to more pregnancies. What's so hard about one pill a day, either every morning or every night? Almost all European nations have over-the-counter birth control pills, and none of these objections have been substantiated. Jeremy, for a nation that has twice the maternal mortality of other industrialized countries, and is one of only three countries in the world, with the other two in sub-Saharan Africa experiencing rising maternal death rates, we should be ashamed of how poorly we provide medical care to women in the United States. As we noted earlier, when politics and medicine are mixed, the concoction is hard to digest and often lethal. The one potential stumbling block to maximizing the opportunities that the solution provides under federal law is that although insurers are encouraged to cover the full cost of over-the-counter contraceptive methods, they're not required to do so. So far, 13 states have passed laws making such coverage mandatory. Robbie, another listener wanted to know, uh, what's new relative to long COVID? Any updates? Jeremy, I wish I could tell you that we fully understood the problem now. We have an effective solution. But no, the truth is that progress in both understanding and treatment is very slow. Three years after the problem was first noticed, there's no agreed upon protocol, even for how to diagnose the problem or treat the many complications that can occur after a person has had an infection. Things including cognitive difficulties, respiratory, neurological, generalized weakness, fatigue. In an unusual way, FDA officials are trying a different approach to try to find something that works in a predictable way. What they're asking for is feedback from patients who have the problem, who have experimented maybe with unproven treatments or ideas of older drugs that could be used off-label uses of current medications, even untested supplements. And then they'll design research studies around the ones that a lot of individuals have found effective to see if they really work or whether it's just simply anecdotal. It's estimated that in total, there are about 20 million Americans with ongoing medical problems, months and even years after being infected with the coronavirus. This patient-driven technique is an approach that the FDA has used for other difficult to understand, elusive medical problems, in particular chronic fatigue syndrome. And hopefully they'll give us some new excellent ideas and opportunities to treat long COVID and be able to relieve the suffering of so many Americans. Another listener asks, given that the pandemic appears to be over, what do we learn about the efficacy of vaccine and booster shots? Jeremy, an excellent study on this topic comes from Canada was published in the JAMA Network. It looked at over 1.5 million hospital admissions, 155 different facilities across the first two years of the pandemic. In this research, the likelihood of dying if you weren't vaccinated 
was 15 times higher than if you were fully vaccinated and boosted. One of the best aspects of this work was that by examining such a long time period, the vaccine's efficacy and its impact on saving lives could be measured for each of the various and multiple viral variants. And as we've speculated on this podcast, what happened was that over time, the virus did become less virulent, meaning that the risk of dying once infected declined, possibly from the vaccine, possibly from prior infection. But we also saw that the, that the virus itself became more transmissible, so that the overall efficacy and the importance of vaccination remained relatively constant across time. More people getting sick, but a lower percentage of them becoming very sick and needing hospitalization. So when you multiply those numbers together, it was a relatively constant chance of dying. I wish I understood the resistance that people have to vaccination. The evidence is overwhelming. A 15 to one ratio is unmatched by almost anything else that doctors do. Everywhere I look in healthcare, Jeremy, politics stand in the way of health. We talked six months ago about the conglomerate of monopolies. Has anything happened at the government level since then to address the problem? Jeremy, it's not clear if new regulations will be implemented, but there is major discussion and debate happening at the current time. The focus of many of the elected officials now is on the not-for-profit hospitals. And what they see, these officials, is a non-competitive behavior by these facilities that are not paying taxes. Reports from the Wall Street Journal documented clauses in various contracts between insurers and hospitals, ones that required the insurer to include all of the facilities in a large and dominant hospital system in every contract that signed and to discourage the use of less expensive rivals. It's estimated that these agreements increase hospital costs by at least 10% a year. A bipartisan bill in the House would increase the scrutiny and regulatory oversight of these inpatient facilities, and even their not-for-profit status was being examined. The data indicate that contrary to what you might assume, not-for-profit hospitals offer less, not more, uncompensated care, and they are more likely, not less likely, to use collection agencies to aggressively go after patients who can't afford to pay the out-of-pocket costs. As we discussed in our Diving Deep program, when it comes to hospitals, there are haves and have-nots. The haves are in a relatively non-competitive geography, and they've been successful at raising prices and generating large profits. The have-nots, they tend to be in geographies with intense competition or ones where it's socioeconomically challenged so that reimbursement rates are low. And they're being forced to charge even less than the haves, often at rates that make them unprofitable at the current time. It's still a long way to go before there's gonna be final legislation, but the combination of this potential action, this bipartisan action in the House, and the strong voices in the Senate of Senators Warren and Sanders, it's making the hospital industry increasingly concerned. I think you're gonna see a lot of, at least language coming out of elected officials, hopefully, They'll be tied into well thought through appropriate regulations, restrictions, and requirements. Robbie, speaking of federal decisions, on our last show, we told listeners the Supreme Court would be ruling on Mifepristone, one of the pills used to help women end pregnancy. The next day, the court gave its decision. What are the consequences? Jeremy, as we predicted, 
when we recorded the show, the Supreme Court, at least in this preliminary ruling, chose not to create a national policy for this medication. That means that the drug will continue to be available, at least for a while. Currently, the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals is scheduled to hear arguments on the question of whether the FDA failed to do its fiduciary accountability when it approved the medication two decades ago. It could decide to uphold the lower court ruling that overturned the FDA's authority. It also could side with a different court and keep the status quo in place, or it could pick a landing spot in between. Given that all three members of this particular circuit court who is, that are scheduled to hear the appeal have embraced an anti-abortion position in the past, some type of restriction coming out of this appellate process is expected. But if that happens, probably nothing will occur until the Supreme Court rules on the decision, and that most likely won't occur at least until the next term. As you can tell, the crisis is temporarily avoided, but the fundamental question of the court's authority versus that of the FDA, that still remains unsettled. So let me ask you, Jeremy, it seems as though the courts have become politicized in a way that the Constitution sought to avoid. Robbie, let's go back to where today's episode began. What will the end of COVID-19 emergency status mean for patients? Jeremy, there will be quite a number of changes happening as a result of the public health emergency ending. As an example, the requirement for private insurers to cover the COVID-19 testing kits that we've become so used to getting in a variety of retail stores, that will go away. People may have to pay more out of pocket and be less likely to test themselves. And this could lead to more rapid spread of the virus should a future variant prove even more transmissible. The exception will be, the, will be Americans on Medicare who will continue to be able to obtain free testing kits at least until September 30th of 2024. Similarly, the various COVID-19 vaccines that have been free for all Americans, they'll still be free for people on Medicare and Medicaid, but some individuals with private coverage, they'll have to pay out of pocket and they'll have to pay a co-payment. And an area of concern for people like me who are proponents of virtual medical care, the easing of restrictions on the use of video chat through applications like Apple FaceTime, Facebook Messenger, and WhatsApp, that's going to terminate. And that's going to make telemedicine much harder to accomplish. Similarly, the easing of restrictions on hospitals that have used telemedicine to help care for patients in other hospitals, when these other hospitals have had insufficient staff or needed additional expertise, that too will end. Well, we've talked at length about the restrictions placed by the FDA on virtual prescribing of life-saving drugs that fortunately, as we said earlier, have been retained for the next six months but ultimately could be prohibited in the future. Financially, the end of the emergency legislation will cause health systems to lose the added payments that Medicare has been providing for the treatment of COVID-19 patients during the pandemic. And this will aggravate the challenges for, again, these hospitals in the lower socioeconomic areas of the country, the more competitive ones where rates are relatively low and they're currently losing money. The impact of ending the emergency declaration will be massive and most of it will not be very good for the health of our country. In our last episode, we talked about the two different types of Medicare. Several listeners were interested in about additional details. Can you provide some information? Happy to do so, Jeremy. As a nation, we're seeing a large change in the decisions people over the age of 65 make about the health care coverage they're going to get. You may remember from prior episodes that there are two options that patients have. They can pick traditional fee-for-service Medicare, 
which gives them the option to see any doctor they want, or they can select Medicare Advantage, which requires them to choose a particular private insurance company and see the doctors inside the company's network. An added benefit of Medicare Advantage is that additional services like dental and vision can be offered at no cost. And in general, there are lower out-of-pocket costs for enrollees when they get their medical care. And even though traditional Medicare has been in place for 25 years longer, what we're seeing now for the first time in history is that over half of enrollees, they're choosing Medicare Advantage. And that percentage is increasing by about 2% a year. For context, only one in five, 20% in total of Medicare enrollees chose Medicare Advantage 15 years ago in 2007. Today, it's over 50%. I interpret this data to indicate that cost has become a bigger issue for people than unlimited choice of doctors and hospitals. It indicates that a capitated health coverage, which providers are paid a set fee to deliver all the medical care a population of patients needs, has a greater chance of becoming a means by which all doctors and hospitals are paid in the future. This is significant. What's going to happen over time that we have to wait to see. Robbie, we heard from several listeners about a discussion in the last Medicine the Truth episode about isolation and depression. I saw that Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General, wrote an op-ed on the topic in the New York Times. What did he say and what's your take on his ideas? Jeremy, Vivek has talked about the massive impact that isolation and loneliness have on people and their health, both their mental and physical health. He estimates that's the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day it produces a 29% greater risk of heart disease, 50% higher rate of dementia, and 32% greater chance of having a stroke. The Surgeon General quotes statistics which show how prevalent loneliness is, impacting one in every two Americans across all age groups and socioeconomic groups. In follow-up, he proposed a framework to address the challenge. And although it had lofty goals, it actually contained very few specifics. As a nation, the pandemic has aggravated this problem. But rather than bouncing back, many of the actions that reduce connections during the pandemic have persisted, and there's little on the horizon, I worry, to indicate that the worst is over. I fear that the problem will only become more aggravated, and this will continue to deteriorate both the physical and mental health of both young and old Americans. What else is research on healthcare demonstrating? The issue of financial incentives, Jeremy, remains very controversial. Most providers deny that how they are paid or by whom makes a difference in their clinical judgment. The data, unfortunately, says that they're wrong. In a recent study published in Health Affairs, researchers compared two sets of cardiologists. There were those employed by a hospital and those who were independent clinicians in the surrounding community. They recognized that for doctors employed by the hospital, the salaries often included incentives based on the dollars they generate for the inpatient facility. And some of the most lucrative services are in high-intensity hospital-based interventions. As economists would predict, these doctors employed by the hospitals did provide these highly remunerative treatments for the hospitals in which they worked more commonly than independent physicians who did not work for hospitals. More specifically, the researchers reviewed 14,000 Medicare patients with what is called stable angina. This is mild chest pain that happens with exercise and can be treated either with medication or interventional cardiology. And they found that chances of, of a patient with this diagnosis getting a heart catheterization increased from 33% to 38% in 
among cardiologists who were being paid by the hospital, and the chances of the patient receiving coronary angioplasty went up from 11 to 14% when the doctor was employed by the inpatient facility. Robbie, a listener said that this spring has been terrible for her allergies. Uh, she wanted to know if this is happening more broadly. Jeremy, climate change has made the allergy season longer and more intense. Warmer weather, especially when combined with added rain, results in higher pollen counts. With the spring allergy season in many parts of the country now starting a month earlier than it used to and lasting for an additional half month than before. And even in the fall, the allergy season, this time driven by ragweed, goldenrod, and a variety of pollinating weeds, it's moved up from September to August. So the second half of this year may not be any better than this spring. What we've seen is that the pollen count has increased by 21% over the past 25 years. And for the quarter of the population that suffers from seasonal allergies, that's very bad news. Currently, the worst parts of the country for allergy sufferers are in Texas and parts of the Midwest, especially Kansas. Robbie, any final thoughts? Jeremy, the data on the magnitude of the impact of socioeconomic factors on people's health continues to grow ever greater and more worrisome. The difference in life expectancy between the wealthiest and poorest Americans averages 15 years. And that level of discrepancy often can be seen in the same city, just a few miles apart when comparing life expectancy for people living in the more affluent zip codes and those that are most socioeconomically challenged. A colleague of mine, Merrill Guzner, writing about this issue calculated that income inadequacy alone is the third leading cause of death in the United States after heart attacks and cancer. More than COVID-19 last year and more than accidents and drug overdoses combined. When we talk about the conglomerate of monopolies and the exorbitant prices of drugs in the U.S., these issues are often viewed from a purely economic perspective. But the reality is that reducing those expenses and investing the money in increasing and improving positive aspects of the socioeconomic determinants of health would save vastly more lives than the medications themselves. If you assume that every dollar spent on medical care improves people's lives, you might conclude that the status quo is the best that we can do. However, if you step back and examine the opportunities being missed, you're likely to recognize the imperative for change. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthCarePodcast.com, and all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comments to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, and have a great day.